Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm here with the newest partner at Balderton, Lars Nielsen. And Lars, uh, we were having a quick chat a little bit, uh, a few seconds ago about your life and some of the companies you've worked in, Dropbox, Uber, and definitely a lot of rocket ships there. And so what we want to do is just kind of take five steps backwards and go to the very beginning of your career. Uh, when you started, when you graduated from college, what was the first thing that you did? The first thing I did was to follow the trend that everybody had been speaking about, which was to go into management consulting, and I completely regretted it. And it was it was sort of like a, a, a it was a slap in the face. It was a, sort of like an early experience that yeah. taught me, hey, you gotta you gotta follow what your passion is, you know, and not follow what people say is cool or. Uh, the trends necessary that are the, the popular thing to do. You gotta do what you what you feel yourself and believe what, what, what you want to do. What sucked about it? Was that what sucked about it? What was horrible about management consulting? Uh, for, for me, it was just it was a very sterile environment mm. where um, it was uh, it felt com it means completely the opposite of like startup, like crazy, wild, mm. you know, think on your feet kind of moment. Um, it was completely the opposite of that. And for me, it was way too corporate. And there's nothing wrong with that, but mm. for me, it just didn't fit. How like, long were you doing management? Three months. Three months? Yeah. yeah. Okay, very yeah. compact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, but maybe within those three months, I'm just curious. I've always wanted to ask somebody who's both done startups, investing, and management consulting. You're the first person Which I have done. Right? <laughs> so, oh, you've, done, you've done enough. You've done enough. And, and I'm just curious, like, how much of the models that are used in management consulting do you reckon are good representations of the way that startup startup models work today? Like what the frameworks of what startup growth looks like? How much of them are outdated? How much of them are optimized for like industrialized periods of, of, of economic growth? Um, and how much are they relevant today? Just curious, maybe, maybe it's three months wasn't enough to be exposed to them, but just... It absolutely, it absolutely was, and I'm the wrong, I'm the wrong person. Ah. Right? But, but, but here's the thing that I would say, and I've seen that through the companies that I that I worked at, especially like the last the last eight years, that we set up teams uh, called BizOps, like business operations teams, yeah. and that was essentially like internal sort of analytical management consultant teams, like internal teams, mm. and that was extremely powerful. Mm. So, and of course, the companies had already. I mean, we had a Dropbox. We were probably at twenty five when we hired the first uh, BizOps. Mm -hmm. That was just around the time that I joined. Mm. And it was immensely powerful because suddenly you look, it's, it's not, you're, you're, of course you're still a startup mm. at that point, but it was just, it was much more logical and structural the way you were thinking about the actions and the, and the path to get to a certain, to a certain goal. Mm. And that was immensely powerful. So I, and I, would, I would actually recommend that model like once you hit a certain level to have like this kind of biz ops team. I think it was Google who, who sort of invented the term or who started with it. What's that level? What would you say that level is? So this is, this is um, I mean, the level is like a manager level. You kick off with that, but then you, I mean, you can grow that team as the company grows as well. So but like what, what, what stage does the company have to be in? Oh, sorry. So, I mean, I mean what, I've, what I've seen, and again, it's a very limited pool of, of companies that, that, of course, that I've worked with. I've seen around like 20, 25 people like that size. Okay. It's a, it's a good time to really, really like start to think about that team. Yeah. Um, and I've, I mean, I've seen it be extremely successful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what, what happened after those three months? I mean, so where did you go to? What? I, I uh, so a very good friend of mine, uh, Christian, who now, by the way, has a massively successful FinTech company in Denmark. 
he, he said, Lars, come and join me. Come and start up this company. And that's what we did. So we started up a company. So it was like going literally from one yeah. extreme to the next. Yeah. What was it? It was fantastic. It was a, it was a marketplace for advice for uh, small companies. Okay. So if you need a lawyer, if you need like somebody marketing, if you need advice, and, and I mean it was it was fantastic. It was so much fun, and immediately like I found out, okay, I'm a I'm a startup guy. Like, and was that in? It was, was in London. It was, it was in London. London. Yeah, Thailand was a little bit off. This was in '99, so we saw like really hit the war hard, I would say. And, wow. And that was like an experience as well, of course. So when when that ultimately fall apart or did it or did you just kind of bow out? It did. No, it did. So this was uh, about a year and a half later. So mid, uh, mid 2000 mm -hmm. when the market just like it was absolutely, it was, it was, it was bloodshed, right? Yeah. And, and then I went to a small company called TJ, which was like T9 text input. Yeah. I remember uh, that. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. pretty good at T9. Yeah. And uh, sort of like gamifying text input, I would say. Yeah, and ironically, actually, SwiftKey uh, yeah. now was also texting, but they just got bored, of course, uh, just a couple, uh, just a month ago or something like mm. that, in the same space, right? Um, but TJ was cool, and then we got acquired pretty fast uh, by AOL, so that was the first time I got to like the appetite, and I got to learn the dynamics of a small company getting eaten by a bigger company, yeah. etc., and, and sort of like the dynamics of acquisitions and what happens in the company. Yeah. Um, and then I stuck it there like for four years. And at just, AOL. At, at AOL, I was part of AOL at the time then. Any specific division? Yeah, so it was AOL Europe. Mm -hmm. And what we particularly did was mobile. So mobile was just kicking off at the time. Um, and it was, it, was, it was an interesting place to be, right? So yeah. my job didn't actually change that much. I was still out doing deals with the handset manufacturers. So to embed T9Ts and put it to the, to mm -hmm. the messaging. Because at the time, mobile operators, they, they already, the majority of their revenues were from voice, right? 80% yeah. of their revenues were from voice, about 20% were from data. That's yeah. sort of like how you categorize the, the revenue streams. But the 20% was all text messaging because we were paying per text message. Yeah. At the time, right? And T9 text input was all about text messaging. It was all about making that experience better. Yeah. So, so that, was, that was what I did. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was it was it was a lot of fun. And the timing of it was good as well. Yeah. Just in terms of mobile exploding, text messages exploding. There would yeah. be, you know, break, you would break through the records in terms of the volume of text messages constantly. And you know, even in the U.S. at the time, you didn't have interoperability between the operators. So it means you couldn't. I couldn't send a text message from my network yeah. if you were on a different network. I remember so, those days. Yeah. I remember those days. Yeah. And you, it's a. Uh, I mean, we take it for granted now, but even very basic foundational stones like that were not in place then. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and, and companies like WhatsApp and Telegram basically were at the tail end of that when MMS was falling apart yeah. because MMS also had that same issue. Exactly. So, yeah. But um, okay, so so AOL was sort of where you, you kind of saw that scaling of, of a company, both yeah. from the T9 uh, t from the TJ side all the way up to. Yeah. To a corporate that bought it out. So what 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 came after that? It was probably around two thousand four five. Exactly, it was two thousand four. So so the so the interesting thing. This was still in the mobile industry. So what happened then was yeah. the three G networks that started to launch. Yeah. And you had the web experience. That was like the only yeah. browsing experience, which was super bad, right? So yeah. you suddenly had data was then web. Yeah. Which was browsing the web, and then it was text messaging. Of course, with the majority of the engagement and, and revenues came from text messaging. Yeah. But then the operators they were looking for new services to offer, and yeah. music was like a, an obvious one, right? Yeah. Downloading at the time, 
And that's what I did. So the founders of TJEC, yeah. they started up a new company, Velodio, and then I and they pulled me into that company. So we did music, which was, you know, it's something everybody loves. And it's something that was relevant. It was like there was a problem that you had mobile phones. You started to have some phones with bigger capacity in terms of memory as well. And, and there was this notion of wanting to bring your music with you as well. So it's like pre-Spotify, Spotify. Oh, yeah. It has, I mean, it was pre-iTunes. Right. Wow. It, it was. Uh, it was. This was early on. So, you, were you negotiating with music labels yes. as well? Yes. Is that your main role? Uh, so, my main role was to again get distribution, mm. and part of the distribution was with the music labels as well. Mm. Wow. Because we were small team, we had we were about we were about twenty people, mm. and um, you know, and my major sort of role there was to work with mobile operators. So we did. You know, here uh, the biggest deal we did was was with Telefonica in Spain, mm. and you know, so that uh, brought me down there a lot, and just you know, and then suddenly you had already then you had the two worlds trying to work together, where you had like you know a small startup, yeah. and you, you had like this massive, you know, Telefonica is one of the biggest operators in the world. I mean, yeah. all over Latin America actually. Yeah. Right. What year was this then? This is two thousand four. Two thousand four. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see, two thousand four was that. Was the Nokia N95 out by then? The N95, I don't think it was out so, yet, no. That was like, no, so you, that was a few years you were really, then. you were really pushing this yeah. early then. Yeah. Because you didn't really have yeah. that many devices no. then. And no. so, what, what was, just out of curiosity, what was the cost per song? Or what was the, the monetization that the labels wanted back in those days? Do you remember? I think it was um, about a buck a song. Really? Um, and the challenge with that, I mean, you, you hit, you hit the, 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 the sore point there. The challenge was the monetization. So it's the same challenges then as, as we see now in ways, because the music labels, of course, took the majority of the, um, you know, of the revenues out of yeah. that, um, which, you know, should be the case given that yeah. the, the, you know, the, the artists that you get, for, hopefully they should get the majority of that. Yeah. But uh, but then you also had like other chances like you would have a codec at the time so yeah. it was everything was through Java at the time and it means you needed like you know a sound codec you know one five three whatever yeah. the, the coding name was called and you would have to pay the codec owners uh -huh. as well so it means at the the bottom line there was very little left yeah um, and my, I mean but the company eventually got acquired by HP um, oh, really got acquired by HP yeah, cool. actually as, as sort of like the the music service, but I went from Melodio to uh, Voice Signal yeah. at the time, and this was, uh, I mean, fantastic team. Uh, Dan Roth, the founder of it, I mean, the guy is just incredible, just uh, this inventor yeah. uh, DNA, which is unparalleled. So, what did they do? So, that was voice recognition. So, it means yeah. it was a TJ, it was all embedded software yeah. on the handset, and then you had at, at Melodio, where it was, it was it, there was a server element to it. So it means you would have a, a catalog on your phone, which was embedded, but then you would, you know, download a song, but that would obviously be over, over, over like, you know, IP basically. Yeah. And that means voice signal was doing the same thing, but for voice search. And this was just at the time when Tell Me, yeah. uh, they got acquired for 800 million by Microsoft, which was obviously, a, even in today's world, it's a massive, it massive exit. And what we did at Voicing was we, I sort of took what I had learned at Melodio and at TJ, yeah. which was doing deals with the headset manufacturers. Yeah. And then we had like a server element to it as well, which was like a voice search. Yeah. It was like and a pre-series series. 
Yeah, it was. So actually, ironically, so we got acquired by Nuance, and today the you know that that is Siri basically, right? This wow. whole voice uh, is the voice. So so they, this was again, this was the same thing as with music and Melodio. This was like with voice at, at Siri today and. and Google now and so on. Wow, okay, so you definitely, these are some amazing companies. So, yeah. so what happened after that? So, I went to London Business School, yeah, and I took an MBA there, like an exact MBA. So, this was like over the weekend, yeah. and it was you know, I had my first child as well, yeah, and it was based here in London. And I was really thinking about okay, what do I what do I want to do next? Because there was so I stayed at Nuance, but Nuance was a very big company already, it was a public company, and it, for me, it was. You know, there's often like when you get acquired, mm. you there's like a period where you try to find out, okay, what's going to happen now with the company, with me, with my colleagues, with mm. the stuff that I love and with all the work that, that you've been doing. Mm. And that took a little while. There's always like an integration period. And and I took that time to, to think about what I wanted to do next, whether it was to, to stay at Nuance and build a career, like a more corporate thing, which felt more like AOL, which mm. it was, it was a big corporate, right? Um, or whether I wanted to to go back into a startup after a period of time. There, I mean, there's some. This is something that many of your companies will see as well. There, there's some financial incentives for you to stick around for a while, right? You're tied to the company, which yeah. is, you know, for for obvious reasons, the company that acquires the small company want the, the employees to stick around. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what I did. And then uh, once that period was over, I left, and I joined a company called Free Jam. Which was uh, it was like an early WhatsApp oh, okay. uh, sort of iteration. So it was messaging, multi-party messaging, mm -hmm. um, all internet protocol, mm. and it was uh, based in San Francisco. And um, what year was this? This was in two thousand and seven. So this was just the year when the iPhone launched. The iPhone was announced in January, launched in June. And so it means mobile really had like a massive moment there, right? And um, and messaging was big, right? So it means messaging had gone from SMS already then mm -hmm. to being able to basically and, and part of the challenge with SMS at the time was it was super expensive, right? Yeah. So it's the same dynamics that that were applied then apply today. You always yeah. want to go where the water flows the fastest, right? Yeah. It's cheapest. And so so we built like an um, you know a Java based Android. Uh, sorry, Java-based uh, messaging client. Android hadn't launched at the time. Yeah. And the way that came around was actually funny. It was uh, one of the partners from New Enterprise Associates, NEA, yeah. in the Valley, who said, you know, I had a I had a coffee with him yeah. here in London, and uh, you know, a rainy Sunday morning sort of thing. And he said, Lash, you gotta come and join my company, Three Jam. Nice. Because he didn't want it. The plan was that I should replicate what I had done in these. Previous three companies, yeah. which was working with the handset manufacturers yeah, and the okay. mobile operators, so it was logical. And I'd never been to Silicon Valley, but it sounded fun, you yeah. know. And it was again the direction the industry was moving, especially with just with the launch of the iPhone. And I said, "Yeah, this sound, the sound feel, feels right." I met mm. the team, and it, uh, timing felt right as well. With messaging exploding, mm. and everything just felt right, and that's what I did. And then I spent a year getting the visa. What the, uh, yeah, jeez. Yes. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about visa issues soon, but okay. but 3Jam, I mean, to some extent, you know, Melodio and 3Jam, I mean, these are companies that predated Spotify's and the WhatsApp of the world. Yeah. And and it, it's interesting, I mean, in your position, what what were the elements that determined um, the, the timing for, for, for these companies? Like, could they have just survived long enough 
you know, many times we'll see some startups that maybe are just a year or two. We had, yeah. uh, we had a company who just slightly, maybe one year earlier yeah. before the collaborative consumption explosion yeah. and could have ridden that wave. Yeah. And what, what, what's, uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, 3Jam in, in that context? So, so 3Jam eventually got acquired by Skype, yeah. which um, is obviously something that, you know, there's, there's a very big synergy there right, yeah. with messaging and so on. Um, the thing I would say, I mean, 3Gen was definitely too early um, in the sense that it was it was a Java-based client, right? And it was just when everything was starting, the awareness was starting in the U.S. as well. The U.S. was definitely behind just the yeah. global experience at the time. And, uh, and again, like the iPhone changed all of that, mm. right? How do you make something really easy and just just like a very smooth yeah. user experience and that was hard to do in Java. Yeah. And but so, so, was, so, so that was like a tech piece to it. It was like fundamental yeah. technology. So to answer your question, mm. they were too early, but for them to have, you know, could they have been the WhatsApp at the time? Yeah. Like probably not. No, probably not. No, probably not. You would have had to reset the team completely. And the reality is, I mean, the reason WhatsApp they became, part of the reason they became so successful was just like this, Focus on simplicity, yeah. right? Which was no bells, no whistles. It's just we just want to make this an yeah. incredible smooth user experience. But if I, if I were to rephrase my question and say there's possibly some really good opportunities today that are too early for their time, yeah. And if we look back 2020 hindsight, we can say, oh, yeah, 3GM was too early. There mm -hmm. was too much fragmentation in handsets. Java was too clunky. It wasn't clean enough. Melodio didn't have the benefits of Wi-Fi established in handsets to download these things and play them yeah. offline. Yeah. So we can, we can always yeah. look back and say that was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But for founders that are today looking at opportunities, which yeah. are likely going to be riding the wave of something in the future, yes. how do you know any advice on like when you can tell, hey, actually, it's a bit too early? Is there any, anything that now you're like, especially now that you're going to be you know, doing a lot of new investments and very cutting edge stuff, it's like, is there anything that a founder can like ask themselves and be like, actually, you know what? This is a great idea, but it actually, I might need to wait a year. It's a really, really good question. I mean, one of the... One of the things I've, I've done in coming back to Europe and mm. becoming a venture capitalist is I've, I've sort of taken a step back and, and looked at, okay, what are the common denominators with Uber, Dropbox, and I was advising WhatsApp as well, between mm. those three companies that, that made them as successful as, uh, as they are. And mm. The first one, um, it, it's obviously very logical, but it's, it was the team. And the mm. team was more about execution and culture, mm. I would say, that I sort of boiled it down to. Um, the second one was the product, and product was very, very similar to about simplicity um, across these companies as well. And then there's the monetization piece. The monetization piece is a little bit more controversial because like at one end of the scale, you have growth and distribution. And on the other end of the scale, you have hardcore monetization, right? And you could probably argue that Dropbox is right in the middle. It's a freemium service. So you get a lot of, I mean, they have 400 million users today. A lot of users who then convert to paid via work and so on, there's a big focus on the enterprise experience. Then at the other end of the scale, you have Uber, who is just a, a monetization machine, right? Yeah. And it's something that people already use to pay for a poor service, yeah. a taxi, and suddenly this incredible experience comes and you're willing to pay for that, right? Yeah. And then it's cheaper even, so it's, 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 it's just an amazing mix of offering for the user. Yeah. And at the other end of the scale, the distribution side, you have WhatsApp, who are I think they just recently even they took they had like a one dollar subscription a year. They even just take took that away. So now it's 
it's obviously completely free and there's no advertising, it's just massive scale. They just hit like a billion MAUs. Now yeah, well. I saw that. Yeah. So, so the final one, the third, so you have like the team, you have the product, you have the monetization space, I'd say, and then the, the final one was timing. Yeah. And the timing with all companies has been, you could look back now and say perfect, right? Because they've just, they've just really hit this point where they got massive traction. And, and this was despite, you know, Dropbox not by far being the first one in the space. WhatsApp by far the first one in the space. Even Uber wasn't the first one in the space, yeah. right? Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so then I, I tried to, to boil down, well, if timing is such a big sort of like contributor to the success of the, of the company, how, does, how do you break timing down? And it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. Um, one of the things that I think is just like looking at trends, like what's going on right now? And what, is, you know, what, what are people doing? What are enterprises thinking? I mean, you know, you can think about security, you can think about privacy, you can mm. think about you know, health, um, you know, self-driving cars. I mean, you see sort of like these big trends mm -hmm. and there's obviously, it's, it's a very sort of like, it, there's a lot of energy in those areas. There's a lot of money pumped into the systems. There's a lot of R&D in the areas as well. You know, VR is another example where, you know, Facebook this week at, at Mobile World Conference said, we're gonna have just like a VR unit uh, you know, run by the Oculus team, and we're really gonna invest in that, and that drives a lot of other people and companies to to put money into that, which then drives innovation, and you get a lot of lot of momentum and, and, and attractiveness of the market, and people work in that market. Yeah. So, it's timing is really difficult to get right. It's yeah. really difficult to analyze, and one you know area that I would compare it to a little bit, which yeah. I think is is almost just as important as culture, like the culture yeah. of a company, is one of those things it's really difficult to uh, define what is the culture of the company. I yeah. think if you ask any of your, your friends or colleagues here in, in the area, like, hey, what's the, what's the culture like here? People will come with different, everyone will come with different areas, areas of, of, of description of that. True. Although I will say that, you know, when, you know, having worked with a lot of teams now, you can tell constructive cultures from destructive cultures. And then you can look at them at, at, when you're listening to a pitch or something and get a feel for a good culture versus a bad culture. But timing is so damn hard because mm -hmm. let's say, for example, there's a whole uh, emergence of healthcare startups right yeah. now. And you know that there's a need for innovation in, in healthcare. Yeah. And it's too, too controlled by a few parties. There's too much issues with, with regulation requiring a, a lot of stuff for a startup to be able to innovate. But there hasn't been a major inflection point the way that when the iPhone launched, it created this ecosystem of, of apps, which then later led to people getting used to that concept. But with healthcare, you might require an intervention from the government, for example, to open up certain kinds of mechanisms for startups to engage with NHS. Yeah. And maybe you know that will never come. But yeah. if it does, yeah. then you know this is the time. Yeah. But until then, you're yeah. just riding this wave of buzz, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a healthcare app, healthcare app. But yeah. they're still doing the same go-to-market challenges. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things about timing that's really tricky is you, you can look back and say, look, there's this major inflection point that yeah. we call it, you know, the, the messaging app or when Wi-Fi was established mm -hmm. in every iPhone. We can look at it, but it's really damn hard to like, 
when you're in it, yeah. it's really hard to see it. So yeah. you know what? That's I mean. So we we have a company, My Tomorrows, which yeah. they're trying to like address exactly that and saying, look, the time to market for drugs should be reduced, right? Because mm-hmm. we have all this tech now, which is helping the development and the testing of the drugs as well. And you can just the process, you can speed it up a lot. But you do have regulatory hurts, and that's actually, I think, just in general. I think, I mean, Uber, we felt it a lot as well, of course, with the regulatory, even Dropbox, right? Where do you keep your servers? And maybe, maybe if I can be uh, breaking the chronology of your life to some extent, but if I jump into the Uber example on but, regulation, yeah. what what has been? I mean, there's a lot of press around Uber, and and whether or not it's, it it does it approaches markets in in a sort of entirely sort of by the books way. You know, you see all the protests in some parts of the world. How is it that it, when in, in a regulated environment, especially a very conflictive environment in some cases, how is it that a startup should think about expanding into that? You know, to some extent, I know uh, Trevor sees Uber as a, as a hero brand, you know, helping solve a transportation problem for a lot of the citizens of the, of, of the city or the country where they're operating. But at the same time, there is an anti-hero brand there, which is the, the jobs and all the people associated with the regulated transport systems. And I'm just wondering how any advice that you have for a company in that process of thinking, okay, fine, this isn't when this is the time, but the mechanisms by which to roll out are actually full of these sort of landmines, regulatory landmines. How how did how did you manage that? So I mean, I can't really comment on your question. That's the reality. <laughs> That's what I feared. I, it would be. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Be, it wouldn't be appropriate. However, the thing that I can say as a consumer. I absolutely love Uber. I mean, I haven't lived in, in Sanford, here in London for you know eight, nine years now. Yeah. And it's completely changed the way I I interact with the city, the way yeah. I engage with the city. And it's it's uh, it's it's improved my life in London, mm. right? And as a consumer, I think it's amazing. It's mm. absolutely amazing. So maybe if we if we step back and look at your time at Dropbox, how about going back to this thing about timing? I, you know, Dropbox has made a push into enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that timing play out? But, I mean, to some extent, the, the people uploading their photos and all the sort of consumer-facing stuff that yeah. Dropbox did, yeah. to some extent, I, I could see that. I can yeah. see where that would be a natural extension from, oh, my hard drive ran out of space. Yeah. But entering and getting the timing for enterprise deployment, that's probably a little bit more complicated. Yeah. How, yeah. how did that play out? Super interesting. So it's a little bit what we spoke about before where it was the – I would, I would actually – give credit to the BizOps team at, at Dropbox who said, hey, let's look at all the cohorts of the users, and more specifically, let's look at all the cohorts of the users who operate to Pro. Pro was like the only um, paid version of the of the product before, yeah. and, the, and the experience you got there was just more space, basically. And some some extra features in terms yeah. of like going back in history and see what you deleted and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But the, the, I would really give the credit to that team by looking at the data and saying, hey, hang on a second. We actually realized that a lot of the people who operate to Pro, it was, you know, from the, from the free service to the paid service, are enterprises. It's individuals, but it's actually being built to, this, to the company, to the small company. Oh, I see. So there was a massive insight that they had and said, you know what, we should actually think about the product from the point of view of an enterprise. What does that mean? And that's, of course, very different than if I share, you know, if I, you know, I was uh, on holiday last week with my kids and I share photos with you, 
it's a very different experience than, hey, let's work on a project together and we have like work dogs and etc. And how do we manage that? And it was customer driven, effectively. It was absolutely user driven and data driven. That's the, that's the core. That's the core thing. Okay, oh, that's very interesting. Um, all right, so if we backtrack to where, kind of where we left off, you you know you had now been in the valley for a while, and then what was the next gig that you moved on from after you had you know had the company acquired messaging? Well, I mean, so actually the, the acquisition of uh, by Skype which mm-hmm. happened uh, a lot later. So so before I spent a year based in London, but applying for my US visa, mm-hmm. my and um, and then I just traveled to the US and mm-hmm. sort of do the majority of my work from here. Mm-hmm. But literally the day I went to the US, you know, with my wife and we had one child at the time, it was like last summer and we run out of money. Oh, <laughs> and this was my first experience with, okay, you know what? I'm here now, my wife is there, my little daughter is there, we packed up our life, <laughs> I'm not going back. Yeah. And that's when I came across Skyhook Wireless, yeah. who was uh, based in Boston, yeah. And who were doing, this was just when the iPhone launched, uh, there was no GPS on the iPhone, it was a Wi-Fi chip, yeah, yeah. the triangulation, and therefore, you know, indoor location was, was born, and there was Skyhook that did that. And I thought, you know what, this is super interesting. And it, it was, again, it was a, we were about 30 people, so sort of like the sweet spot of, you know, 20 to 30 people again. Yeah. And it was... Um, the same model of going out and working with the handset manufacturers, working with the mobile operators. And, but then the really the interesting thing that happened there was it was all about, that was like the foundation working with those big companies. But then it was, okay, how can you enable apps to use indoor location? Mm. And, and that was like the, that was where the industry was going at the time with the, the app store that had just launched then. And it was all about enabling the apps. Like what are the use cases you can enable by having indoor location? Sorry. And, mm. You know, you fast forward several years and Uber was one of them, mm. right? Because now you order your Uber, like, if you're on the street, if you're on the inside, you, it's indoor locations, like yeah. indoor location service. So and that's what I love about technology and like the world we live in, that one service builds on top of the other, yeah. right? And it's like, and it hopefully always moves forward. But that's, that's yeah, why I mean, Skyhook re- revolutionized pretty much what every other app could do afterwards. Yes. I, mean, it would, I think it, without it, we would, we would have definitely not been able to get a lot no. of that. Um, so how long were you there for? I was there two years mm-hmm. and then I had, uh, you know, and it was one of those days when I came to the Valley, it was like a big dream come true, super excited, you know, and yeah. then this three jam thing happened, I was like, oh, I have to find something new. Yeah. Landed at Skyhook, same thing, super excited, it just, you know, it was a rocket ship. And then they fell out with Google. There was a massive lawsuit, and I got laid off. And I was like, "You must be kidding me!" Um, and that was obviously a big blow, um, because also because we had this incredible momentum. It just it didn't make any sense at all. Um, and then I actually later learned about the, the Google lawsuit, which you know lasted for years. I mean, the company eventually got acquired yeah. by Skyhook, but it was not the outcome. And and uh, you know and I even say the distribution of the service that, mm-hmm. that this this could have been, um, but the good thing, the flip side of of, of my Skype experience is that that's when I went to Dropbox. Mm. And how, how many? How big was the team when you well, about, about twenty five people. Oh wow! So yeah. it was like really early. Yeah, it was early. Yeah, that, you know I've been to their offices recently. Have you? Yes. And several times over the last three four years, you know when we do our U.S. trip, and uh, it's amazing. I mean, you see it's some, amazing. you see the culture, you yeah. see the growth, and yeah. you know they hire some of the best engineers. Yes. And, yeah. Exactly. And it's it's amazing to see. You know, you must have. How many people were in when you left? 
Uh, we were 800. So you went from 25 to 800. Yeah. yeah. So what, what would you say the, the, maybe the, the three scaling things that you saw that you wish founders would, you know, like if you could, if you could share with founders, like the three things that you would wish they could avoid and in that scaling process, what would they be? You saw Dropbox go from 25 to 800. I mean, you must have seen some serious inflection. Yeah, we did. Um, I don't know about what founders would avoid, but I would sort of like flip it around a little bit and say one of the things to think about is this culture. Mm. And how do you ensure that the culture stays uh, honest to the brand mm. and the founders even through the scaling process. That's mm. really, really difficult. Mm. Um, and the, the way I look at it is like the culture is like the soul of a company mm. and that's what determines the, the capacity of the company in terms of execution as well, which mm. is at the end of the day what it's all mm. about. And one of the things that Dropbox did, which, which is, was very unconventional, was they took some of the early engineers, like very, very early engineers, and they became the sort of like the brand ambassadors for the culture. Mm. And that manifested itself in like certain ways. One of the ways was there was an all hands uh, every Friday. Mm. And that all hands was very planned out. And a lot of it was used as sort of like a mouthpiece to enhance and to make sure to realign the culture of the mm. company as well. And, and talk to everybody and get everybody on the same on the same page and looking in the same direction. It was almost like, you know, you would make sure everybody were not out of sync for longer than a week at a time because that was like the all had to like the reset button. So that was so the culture piece was very important and bringing in engineers to to run that mm. um, was an important part of the scaling process, especially. Once you hit about a hundred people, that was the inflection point when you meet somebody in the corridor that you don't know anymore. Mm. And also those things just move so fast so you don't have, you have less and less time to get to know people. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I saw this at Uber as well, uh, at Dropbox as well, where we would have meetings and it would be first time that you met people, like at meetings basically, right? That's scary in some ways, yeah. It's, it's not scary. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't feel it's scary. It's it's a it's a sign that the company is growing, right? Yeah. And it's a sign that you have more resources to to tackle the the challenges that do come with growth, mm -hmm. and that's a good thing, right? Yeah. And and the, but the thing that it does require is two very very important factors. One is that the hiring process mm. is really clean and very thoughtful, um, and there's a lot of process into it as well. And it was, I mean, could you, to some extent, with the, the competition in the Valley for staff, yeah. um, could you retain that level of rigor um, and, and move fast and, and find the best engineers? Or, or was there a shift in the way that you had to hire? No, I, I would argue that we did that, yeah. Mm. I would absolutely argue that we did that. And, but of course, it's, it's very tempting to, when you know that, you know, that all these things that you can't build, or all these things you can't get done, just to get people in the door. But I think the, the discipline with making sure that the people you get, um, you get into the company maintains uh, the same level that, that, that you had in the beginning, that, that's something I've seen in, in every, in every, all these companies that I work with. It's that been what, very disciplined. What were the years that you were in Dropbox again? 2013 till, two, sorry, 2010 till 2014. Yeah. 
So for, for that period, how many acqui-hires did you see? A lot. A lot. And, and how, how, how did those map in terms of merging one culture yeah. with another one? Because remember, these, these, these acqui-hires yeah. came with their own inherent cultures. How, yeah. how did those map out? How did they manage those? Well, it was, it, was, it was an interview process, right? So you would interview all, it was typically engineers, mm. you, would, you know, product people, design uh, folks as well. And you would interview them as if you were interviewing them to come into the company. Mm. So, so that's one thing. So that that we kept that as part of the process for the for the acquire machine. I'm saying. Mm. The other thing was it was small teams, mm. right? So it means the reality is you have a team of two, three, four, five people. You already have the culture there mm-hmm. of that team, but it was very much taking a look at that and seeing whether that matched the culture that we had and, mm. and, and making sure that there was a strong match there, right? Mm. And, and at the end of the day, the culture was based on very like, you know, fundamental sound principles, like, you know, trust your coworker, mm. right? And this was the other part I wanted to get back to. One part was in terms of the scaling, one part was the, the hiring process, I would say, mm. and, and, and how you went around doing that. And the other thing was, you know, just to trust the person that you were sitting next to that you didn't know inherently. This is why it wasn't a scary thing yeah. um, to sit with, you know, at meetings with people that you didn't know because you suddenly say, hey, here's a person I can learn something from. Yeah. And that's part of the culture that you have to come in and, and, and be welcoming and with an open mind yeah. to that. Isn't, but if it, yeah. the reason why I asked you whether it was scary was yeah. because when you had, and, and you know, you mentioned this earlier with regard to AOL and some of these, when you have a company that's of certain size, you then, and you know, you hear some of the rumors about how some other large internet companies operate. You start getting into politicking, right? You start getting into people positioning their projects over other people's projects, and then how do you manage resources and how do you get staff time to work on your project versus somebody else's project? And you know, we've heard of things like stack and rank and all those things which are falling out of vogue, of course. But how did how did an organization that's growing so quickly, where employees don't necessarily know each other? Manage to have all of them aligned around a specific thing when all these projects perhaps are competing for some of the same resources. Yeah. So I mean, the, the way the way I looked at it was okay. When we hire a lot of people, it's good because we get more help to get stuff done that we want to do. Right. 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 So it was it was a it was a very big net net positive yeah. uh, result. I would say in getting in a lot of people. Yeah. The, the, but to answer your question, I think it comes down to the leadership. Yeah. Right? Setting the direction of the company, saying this is what we're aiming for, this is our yeah. this is our mission, this is what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And then it was down to the team to say, okay, here is the way that we will get to achieve that, right? Yeah. So again, in a very structural way of, um, of of prioritizing, and then you come down, you know, then then you start to feel suddenly the bigger sort of uh, company way of uh, implementing process and process becomes a good thing where maybe as a small company process is something that limits your you know your capacity yeah. in terms of executing like where it's much more free flowing and everybody does everything right yeah. everyone wears a lot of hats when you become a bigger company which which you know I've seen then it becomes more about process then you you need process you need to control process. otherwise it will be a, a runaway train yeah now there's a sharp contrast in terms of um, going from 25 to 800 people versus WhatsApp knowing small team. Like yes. the WhatsApp team is very small. Yeah. And you know, one of the questions, and they're both successful. Yeah. Right? Nobody would argue that yeah. both of them are at the same level of success. Yeah. Is there an argument to be had that 
perhaps one is more efficient in its staff. And, and you know, you hear about rumors about Apple's team and, it, and the team that develops certain products are actually known to be quite small in yeah. comparison to like Microsoft's team or yeah. other, other teams. Yeah. Is, is there an argument to be had here about um, if team efficiency or engineers yeah. per developer? And, right. and is, is, there, is there a case, and this is a bit of a controversial question, but yeah. is there a case to say that hiring that speed, like a Dropbox speed, is a wasteful resource rather than doing kind of like the way that WhatsApp doing, if you neutralize the fact that technologies perhaps are different and they require different levels of engineers to, to operate? I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Okay. Um, and, and again, it's very, and just in the same way, I mean, coming back to culture, like different cultures apply to different companies mm -hmm. and, and different people, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't take like one sort of like rule and apply that across all companies because they're just so different in what yeah. they're trying to achieve in their product experience. And you know, if you just compare on that level, like WhatsApp is all about scaling, mm -hmm. which Dropbox is about as well, of course. It's about simplicity, which Dropbox is, is about as well. Yeah. But at the same time, WhatsApp has one product and it's like any color you want as long as it's black, this is what you get, yeah. right? And Dropbox is very different because you have both the consumer side of the experience and you have the enterprise side of the experience, mm -hmm. which are very different and it's, it's, it's a lot more complex to um, to get that to be a simple experience, that means you need a, a much vast array of people to work on those uh, different like product roadmap. Yeah. Basically. But could, could I mean to, to to very good transition to a question about strategy? It's yeah. like did WhatsApp miss a trick by not having an enterprise messaging angle, or did it? You know, you look at Slacks of the world and you look at some of these sort of different things. Did WhatsApp not? They miss a trick there. Should they have done that? Like the Dropbox had consumer and enterprise. Should WhatsApp have rolled out an additional product or a set of additional features and perhaps going down that path of high growth, but in a different way? Or, or was that the right call? Because you know, focus is, is a very tricky thing to sort of define. And I would say Dropbox is very focused, but it, it also has to have a variety yeah. of features. Yeah, that's an awesome question. I mean, but, but I do, I mean, it's hard to tell, yeah. right? But I do think. WhatsApp, they did the right thing. I mean, and, and I mean, you compare with Slack. I mean, if you look at the valuations of the companies, there's a magnitude of like at least ten between the two, right? Yeah. And I think WhatsApp, they have stayed true to their values, which is simplicity, like no bells and whistles, and they've stayed true to their fundamental sort of wish to give people free flowing, safe and secure communication channels. Right? Yeah. And, and I think they've done that. that. That was their mission. They didn't say we want to be uh, the messaging for enterprise and consumer. I mean, they stayed true to, to what they started off mm. wanting to do. And, and I mean, and the global impact they're having, I mean, I mean, a very, very small team. I mean, the ratio to engineers to users has got to be one of the biggest in the, in, in, in the, in the world, yeah. right? maybe probably ever. Right? Yeah. And so I think they've, they've done what they said they would, and it's, it's just, I mean, immensely impressive. It's, it's amazing. And, and the, the interesting thing now is also at the time when they were acquired by Facebook, of course, it was extremely controversial. I don't think anyone is questioning it today. I mean, Facebook really, it was a brilliant move they did. Yeah. And the value that users got out of it, the value that the, mm. the, the shareholders at the end of the day got out of it. Facebook, I think, mm. is, is unquestionable at this time. Yeah, no, it's it, it's an amazing success story. It's also interesting to see how many new players the space has brought in. Yeah. You know, even the success, I would say that Telegram is, is chiseling away at that. And why? Like, why is that? And it's only a slight shift 
the functionality is similar. Yes. It's a slight shift in the positioning. Of yes. Secure versus not, and you know, it's, uh, these are all interesting things. And I feel I'm conscious of time and your time. Um, so maybe what we can do is two things. One, maybe I can convince you to continue this in a part two at some point. Yes. But but before we conclude today, what I would like to do maybe is just to to maybe jump over some of the elements of Dropbox and Uber, but go straight into kind of what you're looking for at Balderton today. Yeah. And some of the things that are interesting to you so that founders know how to get in touch with you and what kind of areas um, really sort of uh, pique your interest. Sure. So it's... Well, Bolton, it's, it's very much the same that I've been doing in the past. So we invest in Series A, the check size is like five to five to seven million dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's it's actually quite interesting that it really is the sweet spot of these like 20 to 30 people, which mm -hmm. is what I've been working with all the time. Yeah. And that's the sweet spot of the company. Yeah. And to, to invest at that moment in time. Yeah. And as a firm, it's European founders with global ambitions, yeah. again, at about the size of, of Series A when they're looking for their Series A. Yeah. And then you have the individual partners who obviously look at different areas of, of, of interest so in terms of like sector. And FinTech is something we do a lot of that's, um, you know, but, but there's not a specific area that the firm does. We really do anything as long as it's tech. We, we are very, very keen on that. And, me specifically, it's mobile, right? I mean, I'm 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 very passionate about mobile. I I think I can I can help companies in mobile, and and I want to continue working with something that that I enjoy, and mm. um, you know, and where I can create some value. Like, and, and this is part. I mean, actually, part of the reason I moved back to Europe was because I wanted to work with Europe to get the success stories to multiply. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's my mission. That, that's 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 my my personal mission with Europe. And I mean, you definitely have a lot of the the necessary stories. You know, it sounds like you definitely lived through some amazing rocket ship stories and a lot of resources there for founders. Excellent. Well, um, let's see if we can continue this at another point in time. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and really, really appreciate your insights. Till next time, guys. Bye.